Good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Let me ask you something. Has there ever been a question that you felt like you needed to ask somebody, but because of all the emotion in it, because of the possibility of rejection or their response that might not be so favorable, you didn't ask the question, right? Like some of you guys might remember the time you first asked this question to a special young somebody. Will you go on a date with me, right? That takes a lot of gumption to ask that because you're not sure that when you ask that question if it's going to be well received or if it's going to be rejected. And so you ask that question with a lot of angst because you don't know what's going to come from the other end. And then maybe after a series of dates with that special someone, and you've been going out for a long time, you decide to ask an even more important question that carries with it a bigger emotional response and vulnerability. And that's the question, will you marry me? right? And it's not even just in questions between male and female and people of the opposite sex, but even someday you go to your boss's door and he says, come in, and you go in kind of sheepishly and you sit down and you say, you know, as I've been evaluating everything in my life and what I do for this company, I came here to ask you one thing. Will you give me a a raise, right? You don't ask that kind of question easily, right? You got to get worked up for it because you know the answer might be yes, but the answer might be no. And here's what I know about Christians. For a lot of us, there's a lot of angst, there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of should I, shouldn't I, when we ask other people this question. Would you like to come to church with me? Why is that such a difficult question? I mean, I have no problem saying to somebody, hey, you want to go to the game with me? Or hey, you want to come over for, for dinner tonight at our house? Why is it such a difficult invitation to invite somebody to come to church? Here's why I think it is difficult. Because living in 21st century America, we know that for a lot of people, their problem isn't necessarily with God. Their problem is with the local church. They've heard stories. They've developed stereotypes, right? They've had their own bad church experience. And what a tragedy that is that sometimes the church itself becomes the one obstacle for people getting more connected with their heavenly father. Because the crazy thing is that when Jesus Christ walked the earth, all the people who had bad church experiences, all the people who were confused or they would call themselves irreligious or even anti-religious, do you know who these people flocked to by the droves? Jesus. Even though he was a religious leader, he spent his time mostly around non-religious people. In fact, the most common accusation leveled against Jesus by his critics and his enemies was what? He eats with sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He spends all his time hanging around these people whose lives are directly opposed to what God stands for, right? Isn't that crazy? That as holy and as righteous as Jesus was, it was the sinners who were the most comfortable with Jesus and enjoyed being in his presence. And unfortunately, just the opposite is true today. If you went around and gathered up a bunch of unrighteous, unholy sinners and said, hey, where do you want to go today? I assure you, the last place they would probably say is church. 
And that's tragic. Because here's what Scripture says you and I are. Scripture says that we are the body of Christ. In other words, the closest that our world will ever get to the physical person of Jesus is his church. We were left here to function like Christ. So the question begs to be asked and answered. Why is it people, why are they not flocking to the church in droves like they flocked in droves to be around Jesus? And I think we need to talk about that today because we'll see today that God is more concerned about the lost than he is the found. The outsider more than the insider. The unbeliever more than the believer. And somewhere along the way, the church has lost that message. So we're in this series called Fellowship, and it's all based upon Jesus' invitation to anyone and everyone to come follow me. Not accept me, because there's a lot of people in our world today who say that they have accepted Jesus, but they're not following him in any regard. When Jesus said, follow me, he said, live like me, walk like me, talk like me, love like me, serve like me, and value the things that I value. And here's what Jesus does for us in Luke 15. He gives the church, he gives us this beautiful gift in a series of three stories, all with the exact same point. So we know what it is that Jesus values so that we should be valuing as well. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Luke chapter 15, all right? And we are going to look this morning and listen with fresh ears as we talk about the why behind the what, all right? So Luke 15, again, three stories, each of them with the same point, and he's trying to to hammer it into the heads of his critics and any of his listeners of here's why I came. Here is what is of utmost importance to me and our Heavenly Father. So here's what he says, Luke 15, 1. It says here, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. These were the social, the religious outcasts, kind of the bottom of the rung on the ladder of society people, Okay the one that other people wanted nothing to do with. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus was constantly eating with sinners. Do you know why? Because sinners constantly felt comfortable enough to invite them into their homes to eat with him. Because even though he was the most holy and the most righteous person who ever walked the earth, they were comfortable with him. Even though they were nothing like him, they liked him. Verse 3, we continue on. Then Jesus told them, this parable. And he's speaking directly to the Pharisees and his critics, all the ones who are muttering, wanting to know why Jesus is, is spending his time with such despots as 
the sinners that he's living with and eating with and drinking with. Here's the story. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Here's the principle Jesus is trying to get across to everybody. When something is lost, that lost thing becomes the focus of your attention. Your attention is not on those things that are already secured and found. The focus of your attention is on that which is lost. Let me prove it to you. How many of you women in here have a story about a day and a time you remember that you lost your wedding ring? Anybody? You misplaced it, it fell off, it went somewhere. Maybe it wasn't even a wedding ring. Maybe it was a family heirloom from your grandma. It was just something that held such great value because it carried such great sentiment or meaning or maybe it was worth a lot of money financially. Here's what I know you didn't do. When you realized it was lost, you didn't go to your jewelry box and sit on your bed and pour out all your jewels on the bed and say, it's okay that my wedding ring is lost because look at all the other jewels that I already have, right? You didn't do that. You didn't focus on that which was already secured, that which was already found. You found no comfort, no consolation in the idea of what you already had. You wanted one thing. Seek out and to find that which was lost. And that's why Jesus tells this story. To show, hey guys, listen. The reason I'm spending all this time with the tax collectors and with the sinners and with all the moral despots of the day is because they're lost. And just like any of you all would chase down a sheep that got lost, I'm here, I came to track down as many lost people as I could to bring them back into the fold of God's family. And then he continues the story. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. And then here's what Jesus says. Now listen to this. I tell you, that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You know what gets God excited? What causes heaven to pull out all the stops and let the balloons and the confetti fly? And what, what is a catalyst for praise around the throne of God? What causes that in, in the heavenlies? Here's what it is. It's not necessarily when Christians get together for a Bible study. It's not when we gather together and we sing praises of worship and, and accolades to our great king. You would think that would give heaven reason to celebrate, right? That's not what Jesus says. It's not when heaven looks down and sees us doing good deeds in the name of Jesus throughout the earth. What causes heaven to celebrate, what causes God's name to be praised and glorified is when a man or a woman who was far from God at one point in their life now connects with their father in relationship and they go from being lost to found. They go from being dead in their sins to alive in Christ. They go from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. 
And Jesus says, listen, guys, that's why I do everything I'm doing. That's why I'm eating with the people I'm eating with. That's why I'm keeping company with the people I keep company with. Because I've come to relate to the irreligious, the confused, the sinful. And then Jesus goes on to really hammer this point home. One story is not enough. He goes deeper. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Now some would say that this represents, uh, in that day and time, a woman's dowry. This is what her father um, would give her that she would display maybe on some sort of a, a headpiece or something that she would wear and it would have the coins of her dowry in it showing to any suitors this is what you will get in the event that I become your wife. So you can imagine then how important it would be not to have any of those coins missing. It would be embarrassing to only have nine when you're supposed to have ten. It would be shameful to have nine when you're only supposed to have ten. All right? So this woman in this story Jesus is talking about is losing one of these ten coins. So here's what she does. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, same reaction, she calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there's that verbiage of Jesus again, in the exact same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Same conclusion. The lost item, not the nine that she already had, the lost coin became the focus of her entire attention. And then Jesus goes on to tell the coup de grace story of all stories. The story that many of you would say, my favorite story Jesus ever told. It's our favorite story largely because we can find ourselves somewhere in this story. Namely, in the form of the son that Jesus talks about. And let me tell you why this story is different. See, the two stories that Jesus has told already about a sheep and about a coin, those are about things that are lost spatially. The sheep is maybe hundreds of yards, if maybe not a mile away, spatially. The coin has been lost maybe 10, 15, 20 feet spatially, all right? But this next story that Jesus told isn't about somebody who's lost spatially, just a matter of distance. They are lost relationally. It's not that God doesn't know physically where they are, but that they are lost relationally. So here's the story. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. That's kind of a insulting thing to say to your father. Would you not agree? Because what you don't read in between the lines is this. This son is saying, Dad, I'm really getting tired of waiting for you to die. And I'd kind of like to have my inheritance now because there's a lot of fun I want to have, a lot of life that I want to live. So since you don't look like you're going to be dying anytime soon, can we just cut to the chase and you give me what is rightfully mine now so I don't have to wait any longer? Let me ask you this. 
Was this son lost spatially between him and his father? Was, there, was it a matter of distance? No. This was a son who was lost relationally from his father. So the father does the unbelievable. You know what the father does? He grants this son's rude and insulting request. And here's why I think he does it. I think he grants this request in an attempt to connect back with his son and restore the relationship. Because even though there is no proximity between them spatially, they are separated great ways relationally. And the father's doing what he can to maybe restore the relationship. Verse 13. Not long after that, in other words, as soon as the check was cashed and he had the money in hand, the younger son got together all that he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. And as soon as Jesus mentioned pigs, his very Jewish audience would have... <gasps> Working with pigs, that's like the worst thing you could do. Unclean, 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 right? But here's why he did it. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So this son, he comes to his senses, and now he's kind of rehearsing his speech of what he's going to say to his dad, because he knows more than anything else he is a huge, huge disappointment to his father. He knows the things he's done. He knows where he's lived. He knows how he's disgraced the family name, how he squandered through his inheritance. He knows he is a big disappointment to his father. So he rehearses this speech as he's going back because here's what he wants to do. Now it's the son who wants to close the relational gap between him and his father. Now, verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Why was the father filled with compassion? I can only speculate that this is the reason why. Somehow at a distance, somehow the father, looking at his son's appearance, the look on his face, the contrition that maybe, maybe he saw the son coming back with his head hung low, and here's what the father knew. My son is coming back now, not to just be restored to me spatially, not just to be in close proximity beside me, 
but my son is now coming back to be in relationship with me. And his heart overflowed with compassion and yearning for his son because that was always what the father desired, to be in relationship with the son. And now the son's ready, and I've, all, I've been ready all along. So the father's filled with compassion, and we read what this compassion causes him to do. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father's like, none of that right now. We don't need to talk about that right now. That's not what I want to focus on right now. Because here's what the father did. The father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. Let's party. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here's what the father's saying. I knew where my son was spatially. I knew he was in the far country. I knew where he was distance-wise. But relationally, we were dead. But now our relationship is alive. So it says they began to celebrate. I know every week coming through the doors of this church are people who question where they stand with God. Some of you who come in here this morning, if you are far from God, if you don't know where you stand with God, let me assure you this morning that your heavenly father, like this father, he's been waiting for you to come home. You're valuable to him. And he is ready to welcome you into the family fold. You. Rebellious you. Sinful you. Confused you. Irreligious you. Anti-religious you. You. And when you come to him, you are not going to come to an angry God who has this laundry list of everything you've done in the far country, and he's ready to get his pound of flesh out of all these actions. That's not, that's not who you're coming to. You're coming to a loving father who's been waiting and watching for you to come across the horizon. A forgiving father who says, no, 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 no. I, we're not even going to talk about that stuff now. I'm just so glad that you have chosen to come back to me. But the story's not done. There's still another person in this story that maybe you've been in this person's shoes. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. See, we kind of forgot about the second son because our attention's always been on the one that got away. But there's a second son in this story. When he came near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But the older brother, listen to this, became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father. Listen to what he says. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. 
All these years I've been found, Dad. All these years I've been right here. All these years, whenever you've called me, I've been ready right here. All these years we have been close relationally, Dad. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. In essence, here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, religious people. Listen, Pharisees. Listen, teachers of the law. This is why I spend my time with irreligious people. This is why I spend my time with people who the rest of the world and the religious community has completely given up on them because they are the prominent priority focus of the Father. He is on a search for that which is lost. And when you are searching for that which is lost, that which is lost becomes your primary focus and you're not so much concerned about what is already found. And let me tell you, friends, the church, the local church that reflects that heart of God is a church that you will see mobilizing and strategizing themselves to that very concept. And the local church that forgets about or neglects that which is closest to the heart of God becomes a, a group of people who are all about gathering with the other searchers, but nobody's ever doing any of the searching. So let's be crystal clear about something this morning. Let's define a word. Let there be no ambiguity. What does it mean when it says an individual is lost? Here's what it means. If that man or that woman has never connected with their creator, their father, through the person of Jesus Christ. And here's how Jesus put it. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes back home. No one has hope of eternal life. No one has forgiveness of sins except through me. Jesus says, I am the only means of salvation. I am the only conduit. I am the only way for broken, lost, sinful man to be connected with and now in right relationship with their heavenly father. It's me. So if you are not connected to God through the person of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are, by all definitions, biblically lost. But let me tell you something. For some people today, that term might be offensive. You're saying I'm a sheep? You're saying I'm a coin? No, here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you this, you're valuable. Because it's only things that we call lost 
that are things that are valuable. Things that are lost are worth the effort. They're worth the energy. They're worth the time. They're worth everything that we can sum up within ourselves to go find it. They are worth whatever sacrifice we have to make to make sure that it goes from being lost to a state of being found. And Scripture tells us that God pulled out all the stops, made the greatest sacrifice ever when he sent his son to this earth to become the atoning sacrifice so that all of us who were lost could have the hope of being found and have a forever place with our Father. So being lost, it's just a statement of truth. It's a statement of great value that because you are lost, you are worth the search. And I think there's an application for those of us who aren't lost. The vast majority of us in this church today are not lost. And here's the question. Have we joined our Father in the search? Let me paint it in a way that maybe you can understand a little bit more, okay? Let's say that you're on a camping retreat with children. There's hundreds of people at this campground and at the vast wilderness that you're at. And, you know, you're back with your family one night at the tent and you realize as you're counting heads that your son... You're like, nine-year-old son isn't there. And you call around, and you, you look in other people's tents, and you go around, and you realize that your son's lost. And the sun is setting. Time is of the essence. It's getting cold. And so you stand up on a stump, and you rally everybody around you, and you say, listen, everybody, listen, something of great importance and urgency to us. We've lost our son. And he's wearing a red hat, and he's got a blue vest on, he's got brown pants, and he's got hiking boots on, and he's got sandy blonde hair. And the last time we saw him was over here by this trail. Would you please help us find him? And after you make your emotional plea with tears and you step up off your stump, suddenly everybody just kind of goes back around the campfire. And they start talking about what you said. And they pull out some sticks and start roasting marshmallows. And even the next morning, when you think maybe we'll, everybody will rise and make this a priority for them, no, they, they get up and they start another fire and they, they make some pancakes and they scramble some eggs and they cook it on the fire and they have their breakfast. And some of the people are even have a book that they're reading about what it means to search for something. Can you imagine the level of anger and frustration you would feel as a parent after you've just poured your heart out and after everybody else who knows what it's like to have a child and what it would be like to have a child was lost, if they don't share your burden, if they don't sense the urgency and join you in that effort? Can you imagine how you would feel? I wonder how God feels. As he looks down upon the heavens upon his church, the body of Christ. And he sees this group of would-be searchers who have all gathered together, but when we leave, nobody does any searching. We read about searching. 
We sing songs telling God he can use us, make us available for the search. We pray about those who are lost. But are we searching? Let me tell you what, friends. If God's chief concern is those who are lost, which Jesus made that very clear three times. If the sole reason Jesus came, as he said, was to seek and save the lost, if the whole reason Jesus left the church here was to go and seek and make disciples, and if we're not doing that, it should come as absolutely no surprise to us if and when we feel the absence of the one who has called us to join him in the search. Why would he dare show up among us if we have expressed absolutely zero concern for that which concerns him the most? Here's what I know. When a group of searchers gets serious about seeking for that which is lost. It's not just good for those who are lost. It's good for the searchers. And it's good for the body. Because here's what God says. When I find people who are concerned most about what I'm concerned most about, I'm going to show up, and I'm going to bless that, and I'm going to empower that, and I am going to be right in the thick and in the midst of that. And my worry is that with a church our size, with a church with our resources, that we would just kind of slowly lull ourselves out of searching. And that we just become comfortable gathering with other searchers. But nobody ever does any searching. And when that happens, folks, we are no longer a blessable church because we are not doing the one thing Jesus said he left us here to do. That's why this fellowship series that we're in, stepping in the footsteps of Jesus, listening to this call, listening to what he wants us to do as we partner with him, key phrase out of this whole series it's the title of today's message in fact it's three words invest and invite invest and invite can you say it with me invest and invite the key to our success as a church the key to us doing what God has left us here to do the key to us being a blessable church and having God in our midst and empowering and blessing the things that we lay our hands on is for every person in this place to identify at least one person in your life who you know is not in relationship to the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. That you may not know a whole lot about them, but there's one thing you do know about them that that person does not have a place for Jesus in their life right now. And the whole idea for you and the whole idea for me is to invest in those kind of relationships 
with the sole purpose that after you've gained trust with them, after you've shared hearts with them, that that person would now trust you enough to allow you to bring them to an environment like this where they can hear the gospel, where they can spend time with other Christians, and where they can see the body of Christ actually in action. And that's my prayer. And I hope that's your prayer. That you would pray today, God, allow my life at some point, some way, somehow, by a divine appointment that only you can set up to intersect with the life of someone who's far from you so that I can have influence on that life and influence will lead to trust and trust leads to an invitation and an invitation leads to them being able to hear about what you have done for them through the person of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you, an investment when you make it can take a long time to see yields from that, right? So it could take a while. But in the end, Jesus said, that is why you are here. So we would love as a church to introduce your friends, your families, your neighbors, your coworkers to the gospel in this environment. And I think that we do that pretty well here as a church. We could always do better, but I think we do it pretty well. What we can't do well is that we don't know your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, like you know them, to invite them into an environment like this. So let's partner together. You invest in those people who God has put in your circle of influence in life, and we will create an environment where they can come and they can hear who Jesus is and what he has done. Here's what I want you to do this morning. As our songs are being played here in just a few moments, we've got a couple songs, and I want you to have one prayer during this time. I would like for you to pray, God, put a face in my mind, a name on my heart of somebody who's already in my life, somebody whose cubicle is next to mine, somebody who lives a few houses down from me, a family member that I know, and Lord, there's one thing I know about them, I know that they're lost. I'm not asking you to have God identify those people in your life who say they believe in God, because that's not enough. Not those people who do good things because Scripture says our good deeds are like filthy rags. Who's that person who you could say that I'm pretty confident if they died right now because they don't know Jesus, they would not spend forever with them? And what we've got up here on the stage this morning before first hour, there was about 700 coins, coins like this. And they represent like maybe what that lost coin looked like that that woman had as her dowry. That coin that she feverishly searched for and she swept the house and she overturned tables doing everything until it was found and secured. So as you're praying this morning and as the worship team's playing, I'd love for you to come up and get one of these coins just to carry it around with you. Put it in your pocket every day as you've got your change. So when you get your change out, you see there it is. 
maybe make it into a little bookmark in your Bible. So every time you flip open your bookmark in your Bible, there's that coin. And it's not just a coin, it's a name, it's a face of someone that God put on your heart and God says, I want to use you to be a difference maker in their life forever. When you do that, and we will do our level best to create an environment in here where people who are far from God, confused about God, even anti-God, where when they come in, it will be an environment where they see the body of Christ in action, they hear the good news of Christ, and we will pray as you are that they will respond. So because they're important to God, they should be most important to us. Let's pray about this this morning. Father, we come to you today knowing without a doubt what makes your heart beat. It's the whole reason why you came. It's the whole reason you sent your Holy Spirit to the church. Because we need a, a power from on high to live the kind of life you've called us to live and to bring the message that you've called us to bring, Lord. And Lord, if the lost is not our priority, if what concerns you most is not what concerns us the most, then Lord, we've become nothing more than a social club that just asks for money. And may it not be said of us, Lord. I pray that those who are here today will take seriously this call to invest in and ultimately invite those in their circle of influence to a place, an environment where they can see and hear and experience Lord, thank you for entrusting us with this great mission. Help us to realize every day the gravity of what is at stake. And help us to say, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 6, here am I, send me. We pray this in Jesus' name.